Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk. Where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go? This is a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today, would you like to go first, Sarah, or do you want me to? Why the hell not? All right. <laughs> um, so first of all, I want to say it's our 10th anniversary. It's our 10th episode that we're recording. Yay! Yay! <laughs> and I, I wanted to ask, what was your favorite thing? What was your favorite thing to research and record? Like, do you have a favorite? I really enjoyed learning about lost films. Yeah, that was really cool. Uh, that one was illuminating and not disgusting although there was an awful lot of fire involved in some deaths uh <laughs> and uh so yeah that was my favorite what about that, you that was unbelievable like the amount of fires that you said happened yeah i was like what <laughs> and that was like a short list poor universal yeah. studios they're just i i don't know if they're cursed or what but yeah I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Let's spread the rumor that they're cursed. You heard it. You heard it here first, folks. It's cursed. <laughs> it's a curse. Only Scooby Doo can fix it. <laughs> have you seen those memes that have been rolling around the internet no. about the Scooby Doo movie? Oh man, they're pretty funny. It's... Is it a live action Scooby Doo movie? Yes. Uh, it's so disturbing. They're they're actually not that bad in terms of movies the they're kind of fun mm-hmm. uh but the the meme is that shaggy is actually like an eldritch horror god that is very powerful <laughs> and <laughs> he's just Stoner, what? <laughs> and that Matthew Lillard would like come on set and black out and you know accidentally kill people with his powers and that they couldn't uh you know shoot certain scenes without people's eyes bleeding and all this <laughs> hilarious stuff about the power of Shaggy. <laughs> the power of Shaggy. <laughs> and its absurdity is why it is so wildly entertaining. Yeah, I love absurdity. Mm-hmm. It makes life so much better. <laughs> it absolutely does. Because life is absurd. <laughs> but anyway, I totally interrupted you. No, it's fine. I, I asked the question, I think. I think I interrupted you. <laughs> well, what's your favorite topic that you... Oh, man. So I, I, for some reason, I love disgusting things. And I got to say, it's a tie between Fatbergs and old school buses. So Fatbergs was my favorite disgusting thing. And old school buses was just really fun because I like to think about old school buses and what to do with them. Yeah, they were, those are both great topics and stuff where you truly don't know where it goes. Like I had no idea about old school buses and fatbergs are just so buried and then disposed of by those brave souls. <laughs> take care of it. 
Oh, and now people send me fatbergs, like they not, like not actual physical fatbergs, like, but they send me like articles about fatbergs. Like my friends will be like, "Oh, hey, they found another fatberg." <laughs> like I forgot, hey. to, I forgot to tell you about this, but my my friend sent me a picture from her coworker's brother who works in sewage who uh, finds fatbergs. I'll send it Ooh, to you. Yes, so. send me your fatbergs. Yeah. not physically please don't send me oh no please don't don't send me hairy grease please (laughs) 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 and i i learned later um because i asked someone but um the chicken bus thing apparently it's a thing that um europeans say um and it's called like a tuk-tuk in guatemala I believe the the buses that run the rural routes, Mm -hmm. the private people that have the buses. Um, It's called a couple different things, but I guess one word, one phrase for it is a tuk tuk among locals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. I guess chicken bus is just a, just a a loving term from um, Europeans that go down there. And I guess it's, (laughs) a slang term that other people use. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of boost pollo. <laughs> Camioneta de pollo. Ah. Chicken bus. <laughs> <laughs> Still just think of a bus full of chickens. <laughs> I know. I like to think of a chicken driving a bus. Yeah. <laughs> like in um, like the Muppets. Where, you know, Gonzo had that fetish for, yeah. for chickens. And, like, sometimes a chicken would be, like, driving the bus with him. <laughs> yep. Camilla. That's what I think of. Yeah. His favorite chicken. <laughs> His chicken wife, if yeah. you will. I think they were married. Yeah, I think you're right. Aww. <laughs> <sighs> so my topic today is hair melanin. I just recently dyed my hair a absolutely gorgeous shade of auburn. Um, And I was getting some gray hair, but I don't really care about gray hair. Gray hair is fine, whatever. I just wanted to dye my hair, but that got me to thinking, like, what? why do we get gray hair? Where does hair melanin go? Uh Like, why? That doesn't make any sense. Like, why is it one color and then not another? And then it's gray. But I found out that it turns out that your hair is actually, like, has no melanin in it in, a, in the hair follicle. It's, like, as the hair grows out, um, the, the melanin is added in the hair follicle. So you, underneath your skin, your hair is actually white, huh. which was very interesting to me. And so as you grow older, as we age, the cells age, the pigment cells age and die off. So you're producing less melanin, making your hair come out with no color, very little color. So you just stop dyeing your own hair. Exactly. Wow. (laughs) I thought that was cool too. So um, melanin is produced by the melanocytes, which are found under our skin. And the reason we have melanin is because it's thought to be our skin's natural UV protection. It protects us um, from UVB, UVA, and UVB rays is what they think is the reason for it. And the amount of melanin you produce as 
many people know, it really depends on your genetics. Like the amount of melanin your parents had, your ancestors had is generally going to be the melanin that you have in your skin. So if you're, if you're, um, you know, a mix of two different colored people, then you're going to be a mix of those two people. And that's the amount of melanin you're going to have. And that's why people are just a range of beautiful tones. And we have so many different hair colors is because we're just a mix of our ancestors. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't produce melanin, that's called albinism. And that's when you're just, you either produce very little all over mm-hmm. or you produce some but that's called albinism and it can happen in animals too. So there are albino um, mice and albino, just about everything. I think there's an albino hippo, which I find is Ooh. strange because wouldn't they get sunburned really easily? I bet they would. Yeah. Ooh. And generally we grow gray because of our age. Like that's generally we're aging and we're producing less melanin and the pigment cells die. Um, some people think stress can make you grow, go gray, but um, not really. So stress can make your hair fall out. Um, mm-hmm. And so your hair um, will grow a little less fast. And so if your hair is falling out faster, then you're going to maybe go gray faster because your hair follicles are aging. And smoking, um, they have actually found that smokers do go gray faster. Really? Yes, they have found that smokers do go gray faster. I wonder, because my brother has a lot of gray hair, and I have like three gray hairs, and mm-hmm. he's younger than me, Yeah, but he is a smoker. I wonder. Yeah. It could be because he's, it it could be a, he's also male. Mm -hmm. Men tend to age faster than women and how you age actually depends on your genetics. So generally they found on average, and of course everyone is different and everyone is made up of a bunch of different things and has a different ancestry, but they found that Caucasians and redheads age like tend to go gray faster. Mm -hmm. Um, um, then the Asian Americans on average tend to go gray. And then after that, it seems like African American or African ancestry people tend to grow, go gray last. My poor Which kid. I found- <laughs> <laughs> she's a white redhead, so. <laughs> well, she's got a long time. Yes, she does. Yeah. So I've noticed um, my cousins that have red hair. So I have a swath of cousins with gorgeous red hair. Um, and they all tended to go gray before the rest of us who have darker hair have. Hmm. And that's just, yeah. And that might be also because of their parents as well. Um, their parents were like the parents with the red hair. It's not really on my side. Um, <laughs> we're all dark haired on my side. Um, and you notice, you notice gray and darker hair because it's more noticeable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this led me to wonder, like, what happens when you color your hair? Um, Because I just colored my hair. I used to color my hair all the time when I was younger. I've had just about every color hair. Um, When I turned, you know, like in my 30s, I kind of stopped. And I had my natural hair color. And then I just recently, I guess I'm having a a midlife crisis. But I like to think it's a quarter-life crisis. I'd like to live to at least 130 um, <laughs> Do it. Yeah. So um, I dyed my hair. 
And so you don't actually change the melanin in your hair when you dye it. Um, when you dye it, you're just, you're using chemicals. If it's a permanent hair color, you're mm -hmm. using chemicals um, like peroxide or, or ammonia or something else. Um, some hair colors say that they don't have any peroxide or ammonia. Then they're using something else. Um, but it's opening up the cuticle mm -hmm. and kind of lift. It's called lift. And then the molecules of dye can then go into your hair and change the color of your hair, but it doesn't change the color that your of your melanin or your melanocytes is are producing. So that's why you always have to redo your roots. Right. Like you, you can't permanently change the color of your hair forever and ever. If you could, then there would be no hair dye business. <laughs> Although hormones can play a part in hair color. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because my hair grew in almost black when I was pregnant, and then it started growing back light brown, which was a look, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I think one of my friends told me, like, she had these amazing Morticia Adams streaks. And mm -hmm. she was like, that happened when I was pregnant with my last kid. Like, I had no gray hair until then. And she had like, and she like seriously grew Morticia Adams streaks in her wow. hair. I was like, whoa. She's like, well, yeah, that's what kids will do to you. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely changes you. Yes. So that made me think about baldness. Um, so I was like, well, what about baldness? Why, why are people bald? Like it has to do with age two. Mm -hmm. Generally, age and genetics is the culprit in baldness, but it can be disease, um, pregnancy, or other hormonal issues. I've known a few women who have told me that their hair just got really thin and started falling out when they were pregnant. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, that's terrible. So when people go bald, it's because the hair follicle growth slows down and the rest phases longer. So your hair has... Uh, three or four phases. It is growing, actively growing. It is shedding. Mm -hmm. Then it has a rest phase and then it grows. So it's grow, shed, rest, grow. Um, so that cycle when, pe when people go bald, it slows down. So you, when people go bald, their hair is eventually doesn't even protrude um, above their hair above their dermis like it actually there's hair in there it just has stopped growing so okay. as, as people go bald it just goes shorter and shorter and shorter and then eventually nothing so when you when you take minoxidil or or some other something to like make your hair try to grow um that's generally what's happening is trying to make your hair grow again um, or they'll take hair from another part of your body that's still actively growing because it's usually like male or female pattern baldness is like only in one area. You okay. only use, yeah, so they're taking that hair from another place and like kind of placing it in that pattern that has stopped growing to make it look thicker. I had no idea that's why hair plugs actually work. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So I would assume that it was it would be very painful because they're taking off like oh like the follicle. Yeah, I've heard it's rough, but yeah, I don't know I from experience. 
Yeah. Thank sounds goodness. rough. Yeah. It sounds really rough. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where melanin goes. It just, um, the melanocytes, the pigment cells just start dying. And then you end up with the hair that was already inside your head. <laughs> so <laughs> as you said, your body stops dying your own hair. <laughs> that's really interesting. And, uh, I almost did where does your ability to grow hair go Yeah. today, uh, so I'm glad I didn't because you just covered it much more succinctly and completely than I probably would have. Nah, it would have been fun. It would have been a double feature. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been our hair, hair episode, but I, I didn't do episode. that, but it's really funny that we keep on <laughs> We don't talk about what we're going to do at all with each other. We just mm-hmm. show up on Thursdays and <laughs> record. <laughs> so it's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. I kind of love it. Uh, <laughs> it's awesome. But thank you. That's really cool. I had no idea why hair went gray. Oh, really? Yeah, I had absolutely no idea. I've never looked into it. And I had no idea because um, I didn't look into hair growth I really had no idea that uh your hair just stops growing but the follicle's still there and that's part of why your hair never grows back is because the inactive follicle's still there exactly exactly I didn't know Yay. any of this very Yay. Yay. Uh, <laughs> so thank you you're welcome and, and uh so I am doing a topic that I had kept in my back pocket because I used to work in this field because I had done as of 8 p.m. last night absolutely no research for this week's podcast which is terrible (laughs) but that's life Uh, and so I am doing septic system waste and where does that go Uh, I used to work for county government doing septic system site evaluations, evaluations for repairs of septic systems. Uh, I also did well permitting and public pool inspections. Uh, it was an interesting job. It was, uh, it was a lot of learning, but a lot of learning of very uh, things that really inspired this podcast, honestly. Because every time I would go to particularly repairs, people would ask me about their septic systems and how they worked and everything. And it's really something people don't run up against a lot, which is a good thing because it means that their septic systems, if you don't run up against it, it means your septic system's working, which is a good thing. Uh, But when you do run up against it, it's usually either when you're having a house built, buying a house, or your system is not working. And it becomes very important because waste disposal is a huge component of public health. It is critically important. Uh, It is, along with, in my opinion, vaccines and milk sanitation, uh, one of the greatest public health, uh, I guess we'll call it initiatives of our time. Uh, That would be water sanitation and then sewage treatment. Uh, Because the septic system is a treatment system. Uh, So what is... What is home waste or what does the septic system deal with? Septic system deals with waste from a home or business that's drained into a treatment system 
it serves one or more buildings, but it's not treated municipally. It relies on some treatment from the septic system itself, and then it relies on the soil to treat uh, the sewage and then effluent from the house. And uh, it is an amazing system. Uh, septic systems are amazing to me. They are, when properly constructed and properly sited, as in put in the right site, uh, remarkable in their ability to uh, sanitize waste and disperse it uh, and disperse the water from your home as well. Uh, so what are some components of household waste or uh, business waste? There's things like bacteria and viruses. There are uh, fertilizer components like nitrogen and phosphorus, and those can negatively affect water systems. They can alter plant growth. So they're important because they can cause problems in aquatic systems, but they can also alter terrestrial systems. Uh, there's also issues with just the sheer volume of water that's used every day in a household and then used every day or a business. Uh, a system tends to be sized by the amount of water first that's going to be used. And then if there's like special considerations for the strength of uh, the sewage produced and the effluent in the system, uh, then you might need a bigger septic system. Uh, so water f is the first consideration. And this is all very North Carolina centric because I live and work in North Carolina or worked in North Carolina. And there may be other considerations in other places depending on local, because it really is a state by state consideration, uh, but depending on local needs, local requirements, local soils. So, uh, some businesses that have particularly strong waste are things like uh, coffee shops or gas stations with a coffee bar or like espresso making. Apparently the coffee grounds are um, very biologically active and they result in the need for a larger septic system to deal with, uh, effectively deal with both the water they're using and the, uh, what's in the sewage. Uh, beauty oh, shop. Wow. Yeah, I. It's one of those funny things where it makes sense, but you would. I wouldn't think about it unless it had been pointed out to me. Yeah. Beauty shops are another one, uh, which makes sense because soap is essentially bacteria food. Uh, you know, it's uh, fats and proteins, and a lot of times. Uh, you know, botanical ingredients, especially at a beauty shop or a barber shop. And they use a lot of water too. Uh, so those are some of the things. Oh, and um, grease from restaurants. So restaurants have uh, often are required to have a grease trap, even if they're not connected to a septic system. And we'll, I, I'd like to cover grease traps as their own episode because they're, more complex than this other topic warrants, you know, diving into, you know, this episode has to end at some point and it might as well end with the possibility of a grease trap episode. Uh, but they are, it's really important to catch fats before they get to your system 
both because fats are easy for bacteria to eat, and so you may end up with too much bacterial action. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that um, as I walk people through what a septic system actually does. Uh, but then there's also that grease just clogs things. It's just, you know, large molecules, like fatbergs are a problem be- because of the fat. And also flushable wipes. Please don't flush wipes. Yes. But then... Don't feed, don't feed the fatberg. Yes, please don't feed the fatberg. <laughs> oh, man, that would be great on a t-shirt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Our first, our first t-shirt. Don't feed the fatberg. Yeah. Uh, I also want to make another t-shirt that says my therapist listens to my podcast. Because <laughs> yes. my therapist does listen to my podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Um, my, my therapist's name is also Sarah. Uh, <laughs> and it's not me, by the way. I no, am not her therapist. <laughs> Sarah co-host is not Sarah therapist. So. <laughs> that would be weird. That would be strange. So, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> How do fatbergs make you feel? Mostly gross. (laughs) Fascinated and gross. So you can serve a lot of different places, businesses, sized homes, etc. with a septic system. You mostly just have to have enough space for the system itself to do the treatment and dispersal needed uh, for the amount of water and waste produced. There are certain things like uh, hazardous waste that would give people pause in terms of having that be put into a septic system because there's plenty of stuff you shouldn't put into a septic system. There are whole lists. We'll include one in our uh, episode show note page on our website, whereitisitpodcast.com. And we won't go into what you shouldn't put in because the list is long, uh, but in terms of what the septic system actually does, because we're going to now get into the where does it go component. Septic systems are made up of primary treatment and secondary treatment with the possibility of pre-treatment happening before the secondary treatment. So I guess that's tertiary treatment. Uh, The septic tank or tanks, if there's more than one, are the primary treatment. Septic tanks are usually concrete, although you can also have plastic tanks. Uh, We've had a few of those installed in the county, and I don't know how popular they are nationwide, but there may be places where they are absolutely perfect uh, for use. Uh, They are uh, very handy, the plastic tanks, for places that are, it would be really difficult to get a concrete tank into that location, uh, because plastic tanks are much lighter. They're not light, but they are lighter than an enormous amount of concrete Uh, and they're usually chambered so they've got an initial chamber where the wastewater from the house enters house or business or wherever enters the tank and then there is the outlet compartment where the waste goes from the tank to the secondary treatment And so I'm going to talk a little more about the tank and then we'll get to the secondary treatment. And we'll include a diagram, at least one diagram, uh, on our website so you can see it visually. I'm a very visual person, so I'll try very hard to describe this well, but looking at it can be helpful. Uh, 
the purpose of the or the primary treatment that's provided by a septic tank and also um, sometimes two tanks are used to allow for even more primary treatment or grease traps are usually put before a septic tank so the fats don't even get to your septic tank uh, include it's, it's allowing for the settling of solids and the separation and floating of what's called a scum layer. So the scum layer includes things like greases, soaps, fats, uh, things that are lightweight. Um, if people flush or wash down the drain, things like um, things that float, they'll usually end up in the scum layer. So you've got the scum layer on top, and then you've got effluent, liquid, and this is not clean by any stretch of the imagination, but it has less strength in it than it had when it entered the septic tank because the uh, scum layer has started to form, scum has floated out, and then solids have settled. So anything that's heavy enough to sink in the tank, and it can be all sorts of stuff, both things you should and should not put into your septic tank. Uh, as the liquid moves through the tank, and it moves through the tank by liquid from your house coming in and displacing the liquid. So liquid comes from your house, displaces the liquid in the tank, and pushes some of the liquid into either the drain field, where secondary treatment takes place, or some kind of a pump tank. Because liquid doesn't roll uphill or flow uphill, but sometimes your septic system is uphill from where you are creating the waste. And so there are pump tanks that technically do a little bit of treatment. They have filters and things, um, but prim their primary purpose is to pump waste from the origin of the sewage to the drain field for secondary treatment. Uh, there are certain types of septic systems that also require pumps regardless of where the drain field is because the systems have to be pressurized in order to get effluent to the drain field. So we'll go through a few different types of systems uh, to talk about why you might have to have a pump tank even technically if your system is downhill from your sewage orig origin point, your house, your beauty salon, your gas station, whatever. Uh, there are often filters on septic tanks, like brush-shaped filters or plastic uh, filters, just to try to catch stuff before it gets to the drain field. Uh, since I've talked a lot about drain fields, we'll move into that because that's where a lot of the sewage goes. Um, and then we'll talk at the very end about additional pretreatment and why you might need that. So a drain field is an area where uh, trenches, or sometimes uh, one single trench, but usually multiple trenches, are dug into the soil, uh, filled with a substrate and a pipe, and then covered with more soil to sort of recreate a uh, soil surface. And then the effluent goes from the tank to the drain field. It may be pumped if needed. It may be gravity fed if not. And the purpose of the drain field 
is to allow the effluent to percolate through the substrate as evenly as possible so that it is exposed to the soil after you've dug out the trench. Uh, there's, you know, a flat, because it has to be flat. It has to be uh, level. Uh, there's a there's a lot that goes into of uh, sort of math and precision that goes into the construction of these systems that I think people don't think about until they have to inspect one and then you have to check the level of the bottom of the trench multiple times and multiple points and if it's off by a certain amount per 100 feet you can't pass the septic system it's a whole it's a whole process. Uh, but the soil is where most of the treatment and dispersal happens for a septic system. So the effluent, which includes water, bacteria, viruses, some solid particles, uh, it might include medications that you've excreted. Uh, it will include, like I said, nitrogen and phosphorus, which can be problematic as uh, sort of fertilizer additions to an environment all of that gets exposed to the soil surface and it slowly moves through the soil. How slowly or how quickly depends on the soil type. There's a whole soil type pyramid and there's a whole process of determining soil texture uh, and clay mineralogy that goes into evaluating a system. Uh, it's very, it's slow, but it's kind of interesting. And uh, so the soil does the heavy lifting of doing things like distributing the water. So it's assumed just in North Carolina per household, per person in a household, you'll use 60 gallons of water a day. Now that's not necessarily the case. There are plenty of people that don't use 60 gallons of water a day. Uh, there are plenty of people that use more than 60 gallons of water a day, uh, but it kind of all loosely averages out. Uh, and so that water has to go somewhere. That's a lot of water. And it needs to be distributed as evenly as possible over a space of soil that can accept that much water on a daily basis and move it fairly slowly, but with, you know, the ability to keep up with the, the load, uh, the soil needs to be able to move it. And so uh, the soil disperses the water away from your house. It ends up rejoining the uh, water cycle through either the water table. It will eventually get to wells if there are wells nearby. Um, but I'll talk about why you don't necessarily need to worry about that, especially if your well is far enough away from your septic system. Uh, pre preferably, it will not end up on the surface of the soil. That would be a septic system failure. And that would be a serious problem because if the soil does not move the water away, it's also not moving bacteria or viruses away. It's also not moving phosphorus or nitrogen away. And that means that you basically have sewage on your lawn. Please don't, <laughs> please, yeah, please don't go near sewage. And septic systems always fail because the soil wears out. Will it happen in five years? 10 years, 50 years, more. It depends on how you treat your septic system and if your septic system was properly built and sited. That's a big part of why there's a permitting body for septic systems that is uh, public 
because I would get paid my same hourly wage whether someone had to install the most expensive septic system possible or the least expensive septic system possible. So I would aim for the least expensive because it was, you know, it would make everyone the happiest possible. Uh, but I also would not write permits for lots that did not meet the legal requirements for a septic system because I did not want them to fail because I did not want people to have sewage in their lawn. That's nice of you. Well, and it was also something I was legally required to do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I chose to continue the job and be legally required to do those things. Uh, A lot of legal requirements for permitting, particularly around sewage, have to do with keeping people from getting sick. Uh, So I've been talking about bacteria and viruses. Where do those go? They actually get uh, caught up in the little nicks and crannies of the soil. And because if a properly sited septic system, it's, it's usually in fairly aerated soil. The soil typically has, uh, I guess what you'd call good structure. And aerobic environments are typically not friendly to bacteria and viruses. So they get caught up in the soil, they get exposed to enough oxygen and maybe dry out, you know, whatever, that over time they will die. Uh, and they are not able to move far enough to get to a water source before they die. Again, if the septic system is put in the right place. There's also um, phosphorus and nitrogen. Those get caught up in the soil. Phosphorus, uh, it's my best understanding. And soil physics is extraordinarily complicated. So this is very broad overview. Uh, Phosphorus gets caught up and just hangs out there. Nitrogen will sometimes go back into the nitrogen cycle and it will get involved with um, bacteria and then fixed into plant roots and then back into the environment in a a more cyclical way than phosphorus. Phosphorus usually just gets locked up and hangs out. Uh, But the soil processes these things in a way that they are not let out into the environment and concentrate or concentrations that are damaging and uh, they will, the soil will eliminate the harmful components to enough of an extent that people aren't going to get sick or harmed. Uh, So it really is, it's amazing that you can depend on soil to do all this work just just because that's how things work out. I really appreciate the physics of a septic systems treatment in soil and it's neat. Uh, And I mentioned that septic systems do fail because they wear out. Let's talk about the biomat because that's a component of septic systems sort of wearing out. Uh, All technology wears out over time, even technology that's uh, stuff that we're just utilizing and didn't build ourselves. The biomat is a thick, one to to six inch thick, biologically active zone uh, where the soil sort of starts at the bottom of a septic trench. And it can become too thick and it will either become too thick over time because it has just grown and become very robust or if you have things like fats and soaps that have gotten into your septic field your drain field or particulate matters uh, so pieces that, that haven't been filtered out of whatever it can be toilet paper it can be waste like human waste it can be kitchen scraps uh etc uh th- 
the biomat can become too thick and effectively block water from getting to the soil, the effluent, uh, the effluent and water. So it includes all the nitrogen, phosphorus, et cetera. Uh, so when you see a failure in a septic system, and this usually takes a lot of time to be clear, uh, 25 years is the average lifespan of a septic system in, in the county in which I worked. Uh, that's a long time for one piece of technology to operate. And I've seen much older ones still operating. Heck, I've even seen ones that, I don't know, I have no idea how they were working for so long. <laughs> I've seen ones that were um, installed uh, with the drain field tilted uphill. And they were operating 30 years later. I'm not recommending that ever happen because I, I, I think it didn't operate optimally, but I've seen ones that have been installed going uphill. Wow. Uh, without a pump. So they're just going, they're just, the water is just getting shoved out of the tank by the other water that's being added and then just getting shoved up the drain field. Uh, that's not the best way to do it, but it has, I mean, it, it operated. Uh, so that's where all the effluent goes. And uh, when septic systems fail, they either effluent either starts surfacing. So you'll see it in your yard uh, in large puddles when it's dry out, uh, or it will start backing up into your house. Uh, neither of which are pleasant. Um, it is also the case that there may be damage to a small portion of a septic system. So it may be the case if you are seeing effluent in your yard or backing up into your house, it's not that your septic system is shot and you need a whole new one. That's another reason why permitting entities like a, a public county office are useful. Uh, because every time I would go out for a repair, I don't care what's needed and how expensive it is. If it's a $3 solution, I'm, I want you to have that solution. If it's a $3,000 solution and that's the only solution, that's what you got to do. But if I can find you a less expensive way to do it, I'm going to do it because I don't make any extra money off of doing, I, I just want, I just wanted to get done what needed to get done. Me and my coworkers. That's all we, all we ever wanted for anyone. <laughs> so <laughs> you not just being, wanted to be safe and, and, and healthy. Exactly. And so not being profit driven has value for the public. Not that profit-driven companies are a problem because they were the ones that did the bulk of the actual work. So they, and they deserve to be paid. So it's, it's, a, it's a system that has many moving parts. It just has value to have a public entity sometimes. Uh, so what, hap what do you do when your septic system is truly shot? Uh, you will often end up needing a new drain field, possibly a new tank. Uh, and a lot of septic permits, at least in this state, now require that an area of your property be set aside for future repair systems. Uh, and it has to be sized with the same requirements as your existing system. So it's just as good. It's just uh, in a different part of your property that has to be set aside for that. So that is part of the septic system, in my opinion. It's just for future use. Uh, and I was talking about pretreatment. I'll talk about distribution f first, and then I'll talk about pretreatment just briefly because it's, it's very complex. Uh, the different 
uh, distributions of effluent can include something as simple as uh, corrugated black plastic pipe, their specific pipe used for septic systems, in gravel. It can be in polystyrene aggregate. It can be uh, plastic chambers. It can be uh, large diameter pipes. Those are useful on mountain sides because the trenches are more narrow. Uh, you can also have systems that require pumps, even if the system is downhill. Those are include like uh, low pressure pipe systems or drip irrigation systems. And those require pumps because you're looking to distribute the effluent as evenly as possible. You don't want a zone in your drain field that's getting a lot more water than any other part in your drain field. The goal is to have it all have similar amounts of water, similar amounts of bacteria and virus loads, similar amounts of nitrogen and phosphorus, so that the whole field is being utilized. Uh, you might imagine that this can require a lot of space, a lot of just physical space in your property or near your property. And that's true, it does. Uh, but there, oh, I forgot one other distribution, spray irrigation. So uh, spray irrigation is utilized with pretreatment. So you're essentially spraying treated water. Uh, that can be for, um, very shallow soils or larger systems. So I just thought I'd mention that. Please don't play in sprinklers if you don't know where the sprinklers are coming from. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> oh, good to know. <laughs> it's not the like little lawn sprinklers, but you know, the big boom sprinklers. Yes. It could be fertilizer. It could be sewage. It could, it could just be water, but you'd want to find out before you go play in them. Wow. Just going to say that. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Um, I doubt that will come up, but hey, you never know. Uh, so there are all kinds of pretreatment options that can be utilized, and they tend to be an added expense for the system. So they tend to only be sort of popular if it means that you can fit a significantly smaller septic system into your property. And what they do is they reduce the strength of the waste that enters the system. They can do that by digesting bacteria and viruses, fixing the nitrogen before the soil has to, uh, filtering out the phosphorus, filtering, filtering out solids. There's a whole host of very interesting um, technologies like uh, sphagnum moss is used. And there are companies from Ireland and companies in Canada that sell uh, sphagnum moss filters, which I think is funny so it's using additional natural substances to treat your sewage it's just it's just an interesting little tidbit. Uh, if you have less strength in your waste there are calculations you can do to reduce the size of your drain field uh, it can mean uh, you can have so it can be a, a way to fit a septic system on a piece of property where it wouldn't have fit before. Uh, again, like I said, it's added, it's an added expense. Um, so it's not always the most popular option, but it may be something that frees up a piece of property or space that wouldn't have been free prior to the use of pretreatment. Um, 
But one thing to keep in mind is you still have to deal with dispersing water uh, and you still have some strength in your effluent. So you do still need space uh, to expose the effluent to the soil and have the soil do the work. So that is where septic system waste goes. I'm sure that was very tangled, but I hope it was somewhat linear in, in its narrative. It definitely was, and it was really involved and interesting. I'm going to really look forward to the diagram because I got a little bit lost. Yeah. I was trying to keep track of it. It's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to keep track of it um, like verbally. I'm sure once I see it, I'll be like, oh, that makes sense. And the sprinkler thing was just like, that was horrifying because I don't know how many times I've like, I played in fields and stuff when I was a kid. Yeah. I don't know if that technology was in use specifically for human waste at the time. You probably just played in fertilizer. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I grew up in farm country, so it's entirely possible. <laughs> Maybe that's what's wrong with me. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with you. That's true. You're great. I am great. Thank you. So are you. Thanks. <laughs> oh, um, one little just sort of public service announcement about septic tanks. Please don't ever put your head in a septic tank. Don't climb into a septic tank. I don't care if it's empty. I don't care if it's never been used. They are enclosed spaces that require uh, specific, basically like scuba gear, it's, except it's not underwater. So scuba gear, uh, self-contained breathing <laughs> apparatuses. Uh, and fumes from a septic tank can be toxic to the point of knocking you unconscious and then you can drown in sewage. That sounds horrible. I don't want that to happen to anyone ever, but also anyone that listens to this podcast. Uh, and even if it's a clean septic tank or an empty septic tank, it's just, it's an enclosed space that's not intended to be climbed around in. Uh, so please don't do it. Especially our listeners. We love them. Yeah, don't you guys that. are great. <laughs> I don't want to read news stories about uh, any of our listeners climbing around in septic tanks well you've told them not to <laughs> I, I have i i have encouraged because you know i can't control i'm going to encourage you to think twice about it well you've mentioned that before i think when we were talking about fat birds you actually said that you're yes because i was talking about how people needed like a breathing apparatus mm -hmm. in the sewers when they actually had to dig the fat birds out if they were too big for the water jets and you're, you talked about like how the, the death rate is too, because there's the one person that goes in and dies and then the other one that tries to save them. Yep. Which is awful and horrible. It's the same with, um, swine waste lagoons too. Oh Those my are really God. hazardous. Oh yeah. You can smell that miles away. I don't understand why anyone would like willingly like dive into it. <laughs> I don't, well, and a lot of times they get too close, get knocked unconscious, and then fall into it. Oh. Exactly. What a horrible way to go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's awful. Uh, before we started recording, Sarah and I ended up talking about vampires, which was kind of funny because it keeps coming up. We've only done 10 episodes, and we've talked about it twice. Or three episode. times. Now, yeah, now three times. So... <laughs> 
Sarah has a fun vampire fact for everyone, and I think we might include vampire facts in all our episodes. Or yes. For, for as long as we think it's a good idea. Yeah, for as long as we want. <laughs> yeah. So this is funny, and I've actually heard someone else say this to me. Um, and it says, the Count Von Count from Sesame Street is based on actual vampire myth. Um, apparently, it used to be believed that the way to stop a vampire um, is to throw mustard seeds on the ground. And the vampires apparently had some kind of OCD and they had to count all the seeds. <laughs> <laughs> so then you could run away. <laughs> what an odd piece of lore. <laughs> I think so too. So keep some mustard seeds on you. Yeah. Just in case of vampires. A little vial of mustard seeds. And you can just throw them in the count. We'll have to count. And it'll be like one, uh, you know, know, count on count. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a two-year-old. I know know count on count. (laughs) I'm glad he survived. Like, they kind of made Cookie Monster, who was always one of my – Cookie Monster and Grover are my favorites. Grover's my favorite. Yeah. So Cookie Monster was like has been affected by diet culture now apparently. Yeah. Like the last I saw it cookies were only, you know, for sometimes food. I'm like he's a monster. He eats cookies. Like yeah. he doesn't have to be a part of diet culture. Come on. Yeah, a googly-eyed hand puppet is not someone that children are utilizing for dietetic advice. Unless they're aiming to manipulate their parents. And then you just say, no, you can't have any cookies. And you hide them. The freezer is a good place to hide them because it can be difficult for small children to open the freezer. Yeah, especially if it's got a lock on it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I know a lot of really smart kids. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Little smarties. Getting into the freezer. Yeah, you know. Eventually, you're going to have to have, like, a whole, like, locking system with, like, codes and stuff. <laughs> My uh, Kids learn lock picking that way, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a life skill. It is a life skill, honestly, and it has come in handy in my life. Really? Yes. Cool. Yes, I've had to we, – we haven't been able to get into places or into boxes, and I've had to pick a couple locks. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, have you found anything nefarious? No, unfortunately not. I'm always waiting. I'm always wanting to find something amazing and nefarious, but I never do. Dang it. (laughs) I know. It's always somebody's junky jewelry or something. (laughs) (laughs) Paperwork. (laughs) Or paperwork from, you know, their bank statements from 1972. Well, you got to keep those, Sarah. No, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Vintage. It's vintage uh, red tape. (laughs) Sure thing. (laughs) It's vintage trash. (laughs) Yeah, bureaucracy. (laughs) Well, fun. I don't have a reuse thingy. Reuse project. I, I just like have vampire facts today. 
Oh, I have one. Okay. A lot of these are going to be art related and our listeners are just going to have to deal with that. But um, nail polish. Uh, nail polish is basically kind of like an uh, acetate, ethyl acetate resin. So it's, I mean, you can smell it. It smells like paint fumes. It's stout stuff. And it shouldn't be, really, if you can avoid just throwing it away, that's for the best. And it shouldn't be disposed of, like, please don't pour it down the drain or anything like that. Uh, And one way you can use nail polish that you don't really want anymore, and I say that as someone who has an ungodly amount of nail polish, uh, is just drizzling it onto, like, a plain canvas in interesting like Jackson Pollocky uh, splatters and it's best to like leave it outside to dry because it uh, or cure really because um, it stinks but once it cures it's really like beautiful pieces of art that are very simple to do like you could even do this with kids not little little kids but you know maybe a preteen or a teen uh, and they're beautiful colors they're very they dry very hard so they're very durable I have a lot of nail polish art hanging on my walls and I always get compliments on it from people who are like, that's so interesting. And it takes no time at all. So. That's, that's my, so cool. That's my reuse. Cause it takes something that it really is genuinely like a hazardous substance and makes it into something because it's been allowed to cure. And again, I recommend you do it outside. Uh, it's no, it's inert enough that it's not going to, continue to release fumes long term or be hazardous and then it's not you know i wouldn't do this on an industrial scale outside you shouldn't release tons of fumes into the environment uh but an individual with four bottles of nail polish is probably not going to take down the ozone layer i hope gosh i hope not with all like the industrial machinery and the mining operations out there, I kind of doubt it. Yeah. Although if you achieve taking down the ozone layer with four bottles of nail polish by yourself, um, write us about how you did that. Cause it's impressive. Yeah. And we'll, we'll be interesting when we live in our bunkers underground. Yeah. Or in our buses. Or in our buses. That's true. In our, in our buses using, you know, UVA, UVB protection of 1,000, SPF 1,000. Yeah. It'll be a good time. (laughs) (laughs) We can all learn about vampires together. Yeah. (laughs) Well, happy 10 anniversary, Sarah. You too. This is amazing. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at wheredoesitpod1. And I think uh, on Instagram, yeah. at where does I think it's just where does it go? Yeah, where does it go? I believe. Uh, if you have any topics you'd like us to cover, you can email us at where does it podcast at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. And uh, feel free to like and subscribe. We're on most, if not all, sort of podcasting platforms. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm.